Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And I'm Father Hayden Butler. And we are today going to be talking about the theological virtues, kind of capping off a sort of mini-series that we've been doing. We did uh, some episodes on the vices and acedia. We did uh, an episode recently on the cardinal virtues. And so now we are here to talk about the theological virtues. But before we rush into the conversation we're too rashly, we should exercise prudence and ask, how are you all doing? Well, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. Um, tired, uh, somewhat stressed out, but all all is good on my end. About to about to go on a little mini vacation, which I'm excited for. We're going to go up to the have, house in Charleston. Are you uh, having to stay busy in order to uh, prepare for that uh, that time off? Sometimes that's a that 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 doubles the labor getting ready to leave. Yeah, th- thankfully it it's not too bad but there's definitely a few things i have to tick off the boxes for to make sure that everything's good um but it should be a nice time it's going to be sort of like a little mini baby moon kind of thing um nice little getaway relax drink white claws by the beach (laughs) father creighton's very into white claws for those who don't know maybe a little too into white claw white claws they're great. We gotta, we gotta explore a sponsorship for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. That's what I'm talking about. Father Hayden, how are you doing? Doing well out here on the West Coast. Uh, yeah, we had the first kind of breeze of fall come through today, uh, and uh, which marks the move from summer to semi-summer that we have here in Southern California. Um, you know, so we're we're battening down the hatches and uh, and wearing light jackets now. Uh, so you know, it's a uh, no, we will. We will persevere. You know, California's strong. Um, but um, we, uh, you know, the pa- parish is bustling. We had uh, this last weekend. We had an art exhibit from a couple of Biola professors at the parish. Uh, really wonderful exhibition on uh, exploring uh, grief. Uh, one of the art professors at Biola came in and did a. Um, he did an installation based on the Stations of the Cross, um, which was uh, really wonderful to meditate on. And he gave a good talk on it. And, um, so yeah, coming off of uh, the high of that, um, and now this week, uh, actually, we are celebrating the 10-year anniversary of Bishop Scarlet's uh, consecration. Um, so on on Thursday, we'll be um, having a, a celebratory mass for that, and then a parish dinner afterwards. So we're looking forward to that as well. That's fantastic. I saw some some pictures from the event that looked super fun. You guys have like a really cool semi-outdoor kind of like hosting event space it looks awesome yeah you know originally it was the idea was to kind of build a more enclosed space and then you know it, it dawned on the planning committee that you know it's it's habitably nice outside for you know 49 weeks a year and so uh and so it's you know to to kind of make the outdoors a part of the the space and they did a the 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 folks that got together to design those did a great job um and they're they're about like they actually got finished about 10 years ago as well we finished them right before um the provincial synod uh that we had we hosted that year where bishop scarlet was consecrated and so um and so those are those 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 aged a decade this uh this week as well so yeah, it's a it's a good good time to remember and reflect. Yeah, you can't awesome. tell they look they look new and shiny and lovely. 
Do you all get to keep the artwork there at the church for a while, or is it the kind of thing where they came in and did their presentation and now they take it back? Yeah, sadly, no. I wish, um, uh, but uh, no. It's it's it was on uh, it was on display at Biola. I think it's uh, I think it's moving on. Um, but the the group that that, that came in and, and helped put it together was this um, ministry founded by one of our parishioners uh, called Art for the Isolated, um, and they do this ministry where they um, they, they consult with hospitals to install, um, you know. Um, meaningful artwork um, and more than just the kind of mass-produced hotel art um, in, in you know, hospital wards, especially long-term care wards, but then also in spaces that are set aside for caregivers and, and you know, medical staff, which are usually pretty bare bones and, um, and soul-destroying um, in their ugliness. Um, and so they, they, their ministry is kind of, is, is bringing beauty to those spaces that are, that are often neglected in that way. That's fantastic. It's pretty cool. Love it. Well, speaking of things that are soul crushing, we're talking about virtues and vices. Um, well, we're talking specifically today about theological virtues, but I thought it would be a good idea to maybe recap a little bit about where we've been, because we have been doing this kind of off and on this uh, this sort of mini series. We've had a couple of episodes interspersed, and I'm sure um, some people maybe missed some of the earlier ones. So it's important, I think, to define virtue, to define vice, which we kind of juxtapose against virtue. Um, and so vices are those are those habits that vitiate and corrupt the soul. So Hugh of St. Victor, who I'm going to quote multiple times this episode, and I don't apologize for it, um, says that the soul is puffed up by pride, is made dry by envy, is made noisy by anger, is broken by despair, is dispersed by covetousness, is corrupted by gluttony, is crushed by lust, and reduced to mud. And because of original sin, all of us are predisposed to vices. But virtues, which are good habits of the soul that orient us towards the good, function as antidotes or sanities against the corruption of the vices. So vices are like the disease. God is our healer. Virtues alongside the sacraments and devotions are the medicine. So the significance of virtues is that they make good works possible and they're made possible by good works. So there's this kind of feedback loop that goes back and forth. There are three different kinds of virtues. There's cardinal virtues, which we talked about in the last episode, temperance, fortitude, justice, and prudence. Those have to do with our sort of moral interaction with others. There are intellectual virtues, which have to do with our ability to process information. There's knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And then there's theological virtues, what we're going to talk about today, which are taken from the end of 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. Now, perhaps one area we should begin our conversation exploring is the relationship between cardinal virtues and theological virtues. Because I saw this as a teacher, Father Hayden, maybe you did too. You're teaching middle and high school students who are Christians, and as they get more in the world and they meet people who have different backgrounds, maybe they get a job, maybe they play on a travel sports team, maybe whatever. They begin to encounter people who aren't Christians, who are nevertheless good people. And I had kind of a, a interesting conversations with students trying to kind of wrestle with that. Like, what does it mean that, you know, so-and-so is an atheist or a Muslim or a Jew or something non-Christian, but they're still really cool people. Like, they're fun to hang out with. They're good people. They care about their families. They care about their work that they do. 
So it kind of raises that question of, well, what's the difference between a theological and a cardinal virtue? I don't have the answer. I'm just posing the question. That's why you two are on the podcast. <laughs> but theological virtues, as 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 I was taught and and taught it, was you know that they they are the fruit of um, saving grace that is given to us, um, that is implanted in us through baptism and unfolded through conversion, and um, and they are. Uh, I think they we would think of them as less of a kind of um, a kind of general grace or or a kind of, or a grace that is manifested in human potential that is you know latent to our nature um, and more of a they are a gift um, that is infused within us um, you know by you know through the objective sacrament of our baptism um, and the grace that we receive in it um, and we become capable of them um, but then uh, they like you said in about virtue in general they they require um, they they are they require of us uh, the exercise of those of those gifts which and and they they sort of they flourish through the exercise of them um, otherwise they remain sort of potential they in, in, they exist in potential uh, forms in us um, and and can be uh, under underutilized or unutilized if they're not participated with and exercised um, but they are that 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 direct gift um, that we receive uh, through the Holy Spirit. Um, and, uh, and, and we are not, we can't generate them in any other way. We cannot attain to them by, by will or by, um, at, or by intellectual apprehension. Um, they have to be infused within us from beyond. I always tell parishioners, like the difference is if you want to learn patience, you eat peas with a knife, but if you want to, you want to get faith, you have to come get baptized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think too, since they're infused, um, they're, they're always this, you know, supernatural gift. They're this gift that God gives us, um, uh, out of his goodness and, you know, fulfilling what he promises in our baptism, uh, and then works out in us, in our confirmation and the life of the sacraments. It's also interesting too, to point out that if you say have a St. Augustine's prayer book or, um, you know, any, like a, a breviary or a missile or, or uh, like a people's missile, anything like that um, within the, the Western Catholic tradition in the prayer and devotional life of the church, you'll find uh, these sort of prayers that are acts of faith, acts mm -hmm. of hope and acts of charity. Um, and so in those particular things, it's not, um, you know, asking for something we don't already have, but it's asking God when we lack maybe uh, a connection to them or we're not using them uh, or engaging or participating in them fully. Uh, it's this sort of prayerful act to say, you know, God, I really need help having faith. I really need help having hope and charity of living into the reality that's there and I'm not doing a very good job of it. So I'm going to need you to give me some special graces to, to get to that point that then I can act on them and I can habituate them and engage with them um, in a repeated regular way. And it's, it's sort of like pulling out something that we have in us um, that comes to us through 
the waters of baptism and is nourished and watered in the life of the sacraments and prayer and, uh, you know, good works, corporal acts of mercy, things like that build up the muscle that we have uh, so that they don't become useless and they don't become atrophied. Um, the life of the Christian is one where these virtues should be strong. They should be um, built up, not deflated and uh, sickly. And then they direct beyond, you know, they direct the cardinal virtues, uh, you know, to that which is present in them as, as, as the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love reveal and direct and empower the cardinal virtues towards their, towards the true end of man, which is beatitude. Um, you know, and I, I think that this, you know, this is where we move beyond uh, the kind of classical conception of of flourishing, right? Of eudaimonia, as we mentioned in our last podcast, is um, actually, you know, the the sort of human thriving is um, is a tenuous end. Uh, you know, that is an, at best an image of beatitude, which is the true end of man um, to to know and, and and enjoy God forever, to to look on Him and to and to and, and to enjoy God always and uh, and faith hope and love that's where you know where justice prudence for you know fortitude and uh, temperance can actually become what they 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 actually are in their fullness because they are directed finally to their ultimate end mm. yeah those it, those goodnesses inhere in each other they participate at various levels and degrees um so you can have something that's good but it's going to participate in its ultimate good. And so the theological virtues really do act on the cardinal virtues to bring them to uh, a fullness and a fulfillment um, that, you know, really is something that leads us to a supernatural end, which is God himself. And what this looks like in the person is, is the complete reintegration of the person, right? Cause um, when we see a sort of noble pagan, like like those in limbo in the beginning of Dante's Inferno or something. I mean, there's so many admirable qualities that they have that they become very interesting, I think, to us. You know, Dante even, I mean, Virgil has to kind of move him along, I think, because he was risking staying there too much, you know. But um, there's always something kind of missing. I was just talking about this with a friend of mine. I sent him a, a, a poem written by a Sufi poet that is absolutely beautiful. and so theologically true that it's so sad that they don't quite get there all the way right it's like it's almost it's almost in some ways worse than just being a regular pagan like because you're like you're so close um not that it's actually worse but it's it's worse because it's it's so much closer um and so there's so there's that aspect there is certainly the theological virtues acting on the cardinal virtues should also be said that the cardinal virtues prepare the person for the theological virtues. Um, so we might think of like an adult convert who exercises the cardinal virtues well. Um, in fact, I, I have seen this happen with a parishioner who, you know, hadn't really ever been to church, but it did have the cardinal virtues and was so much more prepared for what baptism is and what it does to you uh, because of that. And so Peter Kreft in his book on virtue, which I referenced in the last episode as well, points out that these kind of correspondences like love fulfills justice. Love requires that we render the other their due and prevents justice from becoming cruel. Like if I love you, I really want what's best for you. 
and hope props up fortitude because the expectation and confidence that we have in God allows us to bear the arduous now. And so hope prevents bravery from turning into despair and into foolishness, which is the other extreme. And for prudence to fully flourish, it needs faith. Trusting in God as our highest end allows us to more clearly see the means to that end. So unless anybody has anything more to say about the relationship between theological and cardinal virtues, perhaps we could move into discussing kind of each of the theological virtues. So we'll go in, we'll go in Pauline order, faith, hope, and then love. Um, I know Aquinas argues we should start probably with love because it's out of love that all other virtues spring, but you know, we'll, we'll listen to it. We'll do biblical theology today instead of systematic theology. So the best definition for faith that I can think of is the one in Hebrews, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, which is an easy thing to quote, but a little harder to understand. Yeah, I think so it's, it mean? I think it's interesting because we talked about in the last episode, the, the, the fact that there's a fullness related to the cardinal virtues. There's, there's some substantial weight to them. Um, and that vices are sort of a, an emptiness or a negation. But when you look at the theological virtues, I think this is when the idea of fullness and substance really becomes important. Um, and so something like faith um, or hope can easily sort of, uh, when we talk about them in the world, um, we miss the substantial element of them. Um, I'll, I'll jump ahead to, to hope, but it, it makes the point. Um, if I say, I really hope that there's ice cream in the freezer, and I have no, I have nothing to base that hope on. There's no substance to base that hope on. It's just a wild, you know, desire that there is ice cream in the freezer. And then I go and I look in the freezer, and there's no ice cream. My hope is very, it's it's in vain, right? It it has no real connection to reality. You're preaching to the choir since Father Hayden and I are Cowboys fans. <laughs> Our hope is always in vain. It is. Yeah. But there's 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 no there's no sort of engagement with the idea that hope is substantial, that faith is substantial, or that love is substantial. And so when we think about hope as a theological virtue or faith as a theological virtue, it's substantial because its being, its existence, its reality is rooted in being himself, which is God. So there's a real substance to it, not just a, I really hope there's ice cream. No, you, you know there's ice cream in the freezer. You're hoping for it, but it's based on real tangible substance. It's based on uh, the fact that, you know, it was promised there would be ice cream in the freezer by you know the ultimate reliable source you have faith you trust in that promise that is given and so when you go to open the freezer and there's ice cream in the freezer you are brought back to the goodness the truth the veracity the substance the reliability of the person who made that promise 
And so there's this act of love that takes place because of how substantive and true that promise was. It was then fulfilled. And so those the the three theological virtues work together in that process because you have to have faith, you have to have hope, and then those things propel us into participating in this core of divine love. And so I think it's yeah. it's just so much more than what we usually mean when we say, well, you just got to have faith or, right. and I really hope the Cowboys win. Well, it's to cast yourself on, you know, uh, into, into the, in, in a kind of, uh, into a void, right? That's the, that's usually the faith is like, take a leap of faith, right? Is to like step out into nothingness or perceive nothingness. Um, and I think that is contrary to the biblical notion of faith. Um, you know, it, it seems like, you know, faith, and this is where, it, you know, I think Aquinas, you know, has, is onto something in, in prioritizing love uh, and, and, and seeing faith in relation to it is, you, it, you know, faith, faith restores us to um, the capacity for what we might think of as like, as like an entrusted life. Mm. Um, a, a life that is, um, is confidently entrusted, um, but, but one that is, that is not um, sort of knocked about by the temptation, the, the kind of vain temptation to what we might call the need for certainty on one hand, um, which is, uh, you know, which troubles, which troubles anyone that kind of gets, gets wrapped up in that. And, but then also isn't another way of saying, um, I don't have to exercise any kind of, um, any kind of thought in this as well. Or, you know, again, I think one of the most helpful, uh, one of the most helpful articulations of this is in, uh, John Henry Newman's, uh, you know, much underread book, the grammar of assent, uh, when he, he, he speaks about the, the lost category of certitude, right? Of there is something that has been revealed upon which I am basing this exercise of faith, but that exercise of faith is not just kind of casting myself into the void and hoping something catches me. It's, it's saying I can, I can um, confidently proceed um, even though I am not, I cannot yet perceive um, all the properties of the thing into which I am proceeding. Um, and that that's that's more of the, the biblical faith is that we, you know we're not a gnostic cult we're not a mystery cult um, we are um, we we are we are a religion around a revelation um, and that revelation gives a can, can it provides for that kind of confidence and yet still requires of us um, not a kind of vain pious curiosity um, but more of a sense of grounded wonderment um, and then that that ascent of ourselves uh, an entrusting of ourselves. Um, beyond ourselves, which is the the scary part, <laughs> the scary bit of faith. <laughs> I appreciate both of those comments for both of you because I think it clarifies a lot of what faith is in a world where work. I feel like this is a debate that we have to have constantly. What do we mean when we talk about faith? Um, it does begin with belief in God. It 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 means believing that God, what God promises us, is that he'll deliver on it, which means that the sins against faith are both disbelief, doubt, culpable ignorance, but we might even add a kind of fundamentalism as well, you know, kind of easy answer, overconfidence. But also there's more to faith than pure uh, uh, mental assent. It has to be a kind of giving of the self in response. It's, um, it's I think Ma Matthew Bates has a, has a really helpful book called Salvation uh, as allegiance alone or something like that. Mm. And it's helpful uh, reframing those 
passages where Paul says faith and substituting the word allegiance really kind of reconfigures what that means. It's an active thing. It's about responsiveness. It's not just a passive acceptance. And a responsibility too. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you know, and again, this is where charity helps to situate it again in the living relationships between the members of the Trinity into which we are invited to participate. Um, and then our our faithfulness to that, you know, and thinking of faith, and this is how I would teach it in my classroom is, is you know, as, as foregrounding that sense of faith as fidelity, right? As I'm going to live as though this is real and alive and true, um, even if my immediate circumstances um, are not always reflective of that, right? You know, in the same way that I am faithful to my spouse, um, even if she's not in the same room as me, right? I still act as though she is alive and well and breathing and 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 I am still accountable and responsible to her um, regardless of where I'm at. And that's how we we sort of exercise fidelity. And it's not, and again, given the recurring nuptial metaphors for um, faithfulness in the scriptures, it's not far off that that would be how we should think of faith in the Christian life. Well, and it's helpful because it situates it within a covenant. And every biblical covenant has a promise and an obligation to it, right? Mm -hmm. So God gives Abraham yeah. the promise of land and seed and whatever, also requiring circumcision, also requiring leaving your family, also requiring, you know, uh, a, a couple other things from Abraham. And then, of course, the Mosaic Covenant is the same thing. The land, you occupy the land, peace, prosperity, but um, you have to follow the law. And so there's always these promises and expectations which which are necessary for any relationship, just like the, the marital covenant has promises and obligations that are made um, as an essential part of the, of the right. I think this also gets to the the sort of inherent relationality of the theological virtues and as human beings they're experiential realities the the fact that we can entrust ourselves to god is built on it's predicated on the fact that we have encountered him that we have we have actually had an experience with god we were given the grace of our baptism so he he fulfills what he promises he does what he says he's going to do we have biblical data to back that up in the covenants and in his relationship with the people of Israel and the people that he chooses through time. And so when we engage with that, when we enter into it, when we are inserted into it, grafted into the tree, we come face to face with the, the fact of God's, um, his fidelity, his, his trustworthiness. And when we act on it, when we engage with it, we pledge allegiance to it. We set ourselves under it. What we're doing is we're doing it to somebody who is trustworthy. Um, and the allegiance kind of language makes me think of like a general. Troops respond to their general. They, they, they live and die for their general if their general is trustworthy. Yep. If he has proven himself to be what he says he is and that you know, the position he holds is one that he does uh, with honor and dignity and all those sorts of things. Um, if they don't like the general, if he's not trustworthy, their allegiance is tenuous. Their allegiance is maybe non-existent. Um, and you can see examples of mutinies and things like that where uh, the person in charge did not possess that trustworthiness. Uh, and the, the 
resulting catastrophes. Um, but with God, we encounter trust itself. And this is behind a lot of the debate in Pauline scholarship about what to do with the word pistis and its relationship mm. to Christo, right? But that sometimes we have translated it as faith in Christ, we're saved by faith in Christ, when it, we should be reading it as faith of Christ. In other words, it's his faithfulness that becomes the model for our faith. And so when we have faith, we're participating in what he's already done. What all right, this so means? Oh, Jesus lives in perfect recollection of his father and 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 in perfect um, uh, receptivity to all his father gives him and in perfect self entrusting to have everything of himself to his father in the spirit. And by virtue of our baptism, we are um, given the grace, we're given the gift to participate in that, that kind of continuous faithful exchange of gift and receiving and blessing and um, in return. Um, no, that's, that's, I think that changes the whole game when you think of, <laughs> when you think of it that way, no, it needs to be said. Absolutely. And what that also means then is that faith can't stand by itself. Hmm. That we, we often hear the phrase faith alone. Um, and, and certainly there's a meaning to that, that if it's nuanced correctly, we might be able to agree with, but in general, faith, faith can't exist in a vacuum. Right. Um, it needs hope and it needs love and it needs action as well because it, it 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 involves that kind of whole giving of the self to God, so it can't be it can't be a kind of just mere cognitive ascent or anything. So then, perhaps we should talk about hope in light of that fact that faith can't stand alone. Um, hope is a longing for eternal life or a longing for the fulfillment of the promises that God has made. It's the, it's it's the certain expectation of future glory. That's right. It, certain expectation. So, that's right, because it's it's tied up to the concept of beatitude, mm -hmm. which is another way in which Christ becomes the template, right? Because Christ's human human nature is effectively always beholding the beatific vision, and so it becomes the model for what we can and should be. Right. And so it's so it's that desire for beatitude that God implants in every one of us. Did you all ever watch the Donut Man? You know this. Oh yeah, yeah. You know the Donut Man. Oh that, yeah. <laughs> I so he actually became a Roman Catholic. I don't know if you do that or not, but he did. I'm not um, surprised. Yeah. <laughs> but that idea that there's the hole in everyone's heart, you know, and, and mm -hmm. it's got to be filled with something, um, which is a, a common uh, phrase. But I, I I always liked the way that he did that with the donut. Um, we all have that desire and we try and put things into it. Um, often we put lesser things into it, but it's what enables us when we properly understand, when we properly have faith, hope is what enables us to weather the storms of life. Again, it kind of bolsters fortitude, right? It, 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 it allows us to endure whatever's happening now, knowing that we have this expectation of beatitude to come. Yeah, there's a, a interesting sort of in the the kind of Thomistic debate on on nature and grace. You know, my favorite pet topic. Um, I was I'm surprised it took this long for that to come up. Actually, well, I mean, I wanted to give you and Hugh some time, um, so I'm going to jump in now. Um, but if you look at that that sort of um, intellectual tradition of uh, debating the relationship between nature and grace and 
kind of beatitude, supernatural beatitude, all those different issues. One of the interesting things that you see is the side, the camp that sides with there is a natural desire for God. There is this um, yearning or, or longing that every single human being possesses that propels us towards God. Uh, Giles of Rome, who was a student of Aquinas, um, doesn't get as much credit as he should, in my opinion. Um, but as as a student of Aquinas, he looks at Aristotle's idea of potency and and, and the ability one has to to realize that desire, and he looks at what Aquinas says about it, and he talks about having this obedience and hope. And so the human person desires God, desires beatitude, but lacks the means to fulfill that beatitude. For Giles of Rome, it's this weak, almost, uh, you know, crippled will that the human person from original sin just has no will, has no ability to, to do anything without supernatural assistance. And so the, the human person desires God, but has no way to achieve beatitude. And so through the life of the Holy Spirit and through the infused virtues, that human will learns obedience. And it's this like substantive obedience that allows it some potency. And it's, it's rooted in hope. It's rooted in this. Well, if I desire it, and this is the way God made me, and I'm pursuing God in the life of the church and the Holy Spirit, then God is going to provide what I desire, that God will realize that desire. Um, and it's ultimately this gratuitous thing. It's this gift that he gives. Uh, but it, there's there's a relationship to my desire. I don't want it hard enough that God says, okay, you can have it. But because of the fact that I want it, it shows that we are built for beatitude. This this goes back a little bit to the conversation we had, I think, on Acedia about pusillanimity and, and magnanimity, you know, that um, we have to be aware of the greatness to which we have been called. And of course, we can't just get there on our own, but that it is important to not minimize downplay or um, or make it seem like that's an unachievable end when that's the end that God has given us, which speaks to the sins against hope, which are despair or acedia on the one hand and presumption on the other, right? That this idea that, oh, well, God couldn't use someone like me to do that. That's a sin against hope. But also uh, the idea that, well, I'm I'm hoping enough, so therefore God's going to do this is is not quite the right posture either. And so hope has to kind of, walk the thin line between the two extremes yeah and, and, and in the in the kind of practical sense of that you you know going back to acedia you know you it teaches us to um to settle into the discomfort of desire um you know which we experience about in our desire for beatitude at this point in things um you know i think again another recurring scriptural uh, uh motif and also one you know that is favored of, of martin thornton is the horticultural metaphor, and that is, you know, I'm I, I can I'm going to work at cultivation uh, of something of you know of the seed, which it, you know the seed contains 
the entire potential for the grand apple tree that will grow from it, um, a long time into the cultivation of this apple tree, it will still not look like the apple tree it will become. Um, and uh, and yet the labor involved in that, um, you know, is net both necessary and, um, and, and, and is fruitful. It is fruitful labor, it's not mere toil. And I think that this is where hope departs as a theological virtue also departs from, uh, you know, the kind of popular return to stoicism you kind of see right now um, that's ascendant in, in pop cultural conversations, that Christian hope isn't a, um, a kind of opiate that medicates the labor of, you know, bearing the burdens of life, um, you know, which is, which is in a way a, a kind of, uh, it, it's, it's more, I think it is a healthier approach than the kind of escapist hope you sometimes see, um, in, especially in Christian circles of, I hope for glory. And so this whole world can burn and, and nothing matters until I get there. That's, I think wrong. And then, but then also you have that kind of flip side, the pendulum swing into the stoicism that says, uh, life is fundamentally a, a misery and, you know, and, and hope is a, is a, is a brief comfort we console ourselves with at the end of each day, um, that maybe one day it'll be worth it. Um, and, and again, it requires, like you said, Father Wes, to, to, for us to walk that fine line, um, between, uh, that, that puts aside that escapism, but also, um, doesn't try to uh, uh, sort of overemphasize the, the the toil of things, and is and again just returns to sit in the real discomfort of longing, um, with the with yet the, still the comfort the the consolation that that longing will be requited. Perhaps we could say the biblical model of hope is Abraham, mm. who who learns to walk that fine line, and this is what Romans four eighteen says about him that who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. He obviously can't see a way out of the situation in which he was in, except that he had hope that what God said would come to pass, which is why um, the U catastrophe, right, as a, as a literary production is the ultimate exercise of hope. You know, how do we get out of this uh, situation? Well, only God can snatch the snatch the victory out of the jaws of defeat. I found a beautiful quote to kind of end this segment on on hope about from Teresa of Avila. Hope, O oh my soul, hope. You know neither the day nor the hour. Watch carefully, for everything passes quickly, even though your impatience makes doubtful what is certain and turns a very short time into a long one. Dream that the more you struggle, the more you prove the love that you bear your God, and the more you will rejoice one day with your beloved and a happiness and rapture that can never end. I think she sums it up better than we probably could. So we have to move on now to charity. <laughs> so charity is loving God for who he is and our neighbors as ourselves, um, which of course speaks to the, to the summary of the law. So the two dimensions of charity are vertical and horizontal. We wish to possess God on account of himself. And then we love our neighbor because they possess God. And if they don't possess God, we love them still because we see in them the potential to possess God. We see the, their capacity. So Hugh of St. Victor uses the analogy of the honey and the honeycomb. That the honey itself is sweet. The honeycomb possesses the honey and so we say we love the honeycomb 
because it has the honey in it. And so similarly, we love God because he's sweetness, he's goodness, he's truth itself. And our neighbor is a receptacle of sweetness, goodness, and truth. And so we see God in neighbor when they exercise those things, which means that the sins against charity are hatred, both of God or of neighbor, and indifference, vice of deprivation and vice of excess. Yeah, I think of, um, I've mentioned it, uh, I think, before. You can actually, in the video, you can see it's right here uh, behind me. Um, but it's Anders Nygren, who is a Lutheran theologian, um, wrote a book called Agape and Eros. And it's sort of his principal theological work on love and what we mean when we say love as Christians. And he doesn't I mean... He doesn't sort of bifurcate love into maybe what we're used to hearing, which is the kind of there are four loves and they have different meanings and they're used to mean and denote different things. Those differences can be helpful in, a, in understanding the complexities of what love is, uh, but it's this unified sort of reality. Um, and so when he talks about love, when he talks about uh, the love that the Christian is called to, he talks about how when God loves, us it's unconditional and unmotivated and so it's not about our goodness it's not about how nice we are it's not about any of those things he just loves us that that love is totally unconditional totally not motivated by anything we've done and the implication for that i mean that's a statement right the implication for the christian person is that if we are called to love god love him the way he loves us and love neighbor the way he loves neighbor we have there has to be something in the neighbor that we love that is beyond their actions or their condition or their you know the motivations that we could find to love them and that that has to be the the image of god himself or recognizing in the other person the innate human dignity that god has bestowed on all of us uh, and also the capacity for holiness and goodness and truth and righteousness, uh, because those are things that God possesses and God loves that person. And I think that's really helpful because it's easy to love conditionally, right? We we all sort of love conditionally. Take take our baptism and the infused virtue of charity out, and we we're just conditional lovers. It's based on what we get. It's based on the response. It's based on how nice a person is. You infuse the gift of God's love into us, and it totally ups the ante. It changes the game, and it no longer becomes a question of conditional love. It becomes a question of unconditional, unmotivated, true love that desires the good for the other, that bears all things, that forgives all things. And that's, that's tough. Uh, but thankfully, it's a gift from God, so it's not something we have to muster ourselves. And it's important, I mean, when we talk about participation and remembering that the way God loved us is not just an abstraction. I mean, you can certainly, I guess the very fact of our existence points to that love in some way, but the fact that God has revealed himself ultimately in the person of Christ who's crucified, so we love because he first loved us, 
it's an entirely responsive reality to to what has already happened and it becomes cross-shaped in the way that we then love because we have been conditioned now by his love to to love in such a way i think it's significant you know c.s lewis mentions this in his help in his good chapter on charity and the four loves um which is which which is that you know we we have to avoid the error of thinking that um, we can, you know, sort of exercise that that pure unconditional love where it's only self-conditioned in the way that God's is. Actually, our exercise of charity is best revealed through the fact that we that we actually can't do that, um, and and that's that's a that's a significant thing because we can, I think, form a weird kind of uh, we, we we can form a weird kind of attempt at it. Um, at the truly kind of untransacted, the truly um, unmotivated uh, kind of a uh, kind of exercise of love, and 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 it's not proper to what we are. Um, we're we are conditional creatures. We are we are created beings, and um, and as a result, our our there is you know the 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 nature of charity bizarrely is is revealed um, in that um, sometimes in the disparity between our our exercise of charity and god's exercise of charity but the the two seen together actually give us a a working icon of what it of what it is um and, and that's that's how it's known um so it's always known um in a, in a way reflexively not in isolation again it's known relationally not in isolation um and and so i think that's the significant thing is it's not we're given this like mega engine of love that gets put within us and then we're just like off and running by ourselves you know it's it's in relating in re first in relating to god as god is and as we are um as we are made to love god um through that gift we are then enabled to exercise a likeness of that and an, an icon of that towards others um, that is wholly unlike God's exercise of it, um, but that the whole economy of that love of of us with God and God to us and us to other and then th God through the other, that's what this thing looks like, and, and that's a that's a dynamic and uh, and complex image of what it is, and that's why it's it's sometimes for as much as we could say this is what charity is, it's also an elusive thing because it, it requires. Um, sort of simultaneous consideration of all of those things at once um, to really see it in its in its contours. I think it's in um, The Great Divorce where Lewis talks about how attempts at love can go awry in ways that are much more damaging and much worse than some of the other desires that we have mm. because it's a higher faculty. You know, it's it's so much it's up here. So then when things go wrong with it it's it's much more disastrous and and the example that came to mind as you were speaking is in the great divorce of the mother who oh, yeah. supposedly loves her son so much that she you know can't bear to be without him and that she's always worried about him and but but the kind of love that she's exercising there if it's really if you can even really call it love at all is is a kind of controlling it's a kind of pressing oneself on the other in such a way that the other becomes a part of them or becomes a kind of icon of themselves, which is exactly the opposite of what charity needs to be when we exercise it towards others. So perhaps we could talk about the relationship of charity with faith and hope. So like I said, we saved it for last, though Thomas tells us that charity precedes faith and hope. 
but I think it's helpful to remember what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 in terms of the relationship that love has with the other um, theological virtues. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. In other words, those other virtues, while good, ultimately amount to nothing if we don't have love. No, this is a this is a really significant point for for Christian people, um, because it, it I mean it's spoken to a church, right? It's not it's not spoken to an unbelieving audience, um, but reflects a reality I think that we can observe pastorally. Um, where this foundational encounter with God through which we are grown in charity that becomes the the basis out of which we can exercise, you know, other spiritual gifts, service in the church, um, the pursuit of theological understanding, all of these things. Um, it, it it highlights that there is this this foundational encounter that must continually take place, but that is is easy to set step away from you know, because, even because of those other things. Um, so like, for example, you know, I, I think you can have the person that is like committed to doing all kinds of volunteer work at the church, right? But has, is so busy doing that, that they don't really pray anymore, for example. Mm -hmm. Like, in, and and in this, you know, you see, you see a, a way that this takes shape is I have departed from the thing that gives life to any of these other things. Um, and, and, it, and it calls us back to know that, that this is not a, we're not a foundationally a a, um, a a fan club of Jesus Christ. We're not primarily a social um, a social aid organization. We're not primarily an activistic organization, right? We are we are a, a place in time and space where, where where an encounter with God can be can be had, can be experienced, and it is from that that anything takes on its substance, its quality, and its and its enduring vitality, or or it doesn't if it misses that. Yeah, and I think that actually comes out when we talk about the sort of primary action of the church, which is to adore God, right? Yeah. And we use those synonyms when we say, oh, that baby's adorable. Or we say all sorts of, you know, oh, that, you know, that that's adorable, or I absolutely adore him or her. You know, we're using it as a synonym for love, really. And it has a much more expansive definition than that. Um. And oftentimes we're using it inappropriately. And like, I know I actually don't adore that cookie um, or that baby uh, because that would be technically idolatry, right? I'm, I'm adoring, I'm giving what is God's alone to that baby or that, you know, pan of brownies or whatever it is. Um, but it kind of gets to the, the heart of this issue that the action of the church um, you know, the source and summit of our faith is when we adore God, when we participate in the mysteries, uh, the sacraments themselves, uh, when we encounter God, uh, specifically at the Mass, when we come, yes, we are giving Christ himself that we might be incorporated into him. But that's not the principal action that's going on. Uh, when When God talks to Moses, uh, and says, you need to go talk to Pharaoh uh, because I have something important for you to do. 
the thing that is important for him to do is to go out into the wilderness to give proper worship to God. The core of what they're doing is to go and give worship. And that is the, the core of the church. And so when we love God, when we uh, engage in that action of worshiping, of giving adoration, everything flows from it, right? That is, when we talk about the Eucharist, we talk about it as the source and summit of our faith. It's the source. It's the place from which these things come. Uh, and you can give alms and work so hard loving other people. Um, but if you're not finding the source of that love, if you're not giving God what God uh, commands, which is worship, then you're missing something. The other the other things begin to to sort of uh, crumble and to to lack their substance because they're not being filled with what they need, which is God himself. Um, so you can do certain good things, but if the source and summit of it isn't that love of God, isn't that worship of God, then it's not going to work out well, which is ultimately what St. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. He's not denigrating those other things, but he's saying, if I don't have God as the source if I'm not engaging and participating in the charity that I'm supposed to be infused with, uh, then they're ultimately not leading me to what's being hoped for, which is beatitude, and where I have my faith, which is in Christ. It seems like at the heart of what we're talking about the, is the tension between contemplation and the active. It's Mary and Martha, right? It's uh, on, on the one hand, like we talked about with faith, there's this kind of giving of yourself there. It's got to be an active thing that we do. On the other hand, love is is a kind of being, you know, there is this uh, both with God and with others, you know, um, it's it's not just doing it's 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 being in his presence. And similarly with other people, we can love in such a way like the mother in The Great Divorce, right? She's almost nitpicky in her love, like she wants to change the other person. But love calls us to appreciate the other as the other. Let them be. Um, and so there's it, it's it's an uncomfortable tension because I'm not really sure how to suss it out exactly other than that say it's there and that if we get too far into one, we lose some really important aspects of what it means to love someone. It seems like when we try to, again, when we come back to like Lewis's point, which under undergirds the great divorce, we when we try to love as God to somebody, um, that's when we get into some hot water, I think, you know, and that, that sounds good on the surface, right? Like, I want to love like God loves. And it's like, yeah, I, I do. But that word like is really important. And when we when we when we make that that very minute shift into I'm going to love as a God to you. Right. Then we invoke, you know, Dante's idea of a more, right. This, this tyrannical, you know, this tyrannical demon that, you know, that love becomes when it, when we try to do that and, and, and we become that we embody that instead um, because then we have, we have vaunted ourselves, right. It's, it's this, it's a, it's in the level, it's in the domain of charity. What presumptuousness in the domain of faith uh, is this, this, um, this overwrought, overrealized thing that, that causes us to, break the bounds of our nature well and that and that it, it seems like if we tried to love like god we're trying to universalize a particular 
in a way that becomes really problematic. It's like what um oh I forgot what his name is in um in uh Brothers Karamazov, who loves uh he loves the more he loves humanity in general, the less he loves particular people. In other words, when we when we fall into this trap, we're actually we become very ineffective lovers. So I thought it might be good to close this this section with a quote from Hugh, but about the importance of love. Love with all your with your whole heart and your whole soul and your whole mind, that is with your whole intellect and your whole affection and your whole memory, as much as you understand, as much as you know, as much as you are equal to, so much do you love. As much as God deems worthy to become known to us, let all be loved by us. All that we can take, let us love and as much as we can. I think it's just a great because love is capacious. I think that's one of his big points. Love is capacious. The more you do it, the more you can do it. So perhaps to close our conversation, we could talk about how we acquire theological virtues or or maybe how we foster them, um, because we've already said theological virtues are infused by the Holy Ghost. In other words, you don't just drum up faith or hope or love um, by trying hard enough or by closing your eyes and squeezing hard enough or anything like that. Um, rather, they're gifts. And and you can even think about it. I mean, you know, if you like to drink tea, I mean, we have tea infusers, right? And what happens? You put the water in the in with the tea. Um, and over time, the tea goes out into all the water and the water becomes changed as a result of that. And so the theological virtues are somewhat similar in our lives, that the more we participate in the sacraments, the more we pray, the more we uh, live a devotional life, the more we do good works, the more these become part of who we are. I think I like the image of saturation. You know, when we are saturated in the divine life, when we when we are participating, we take on like infusion, right? With the tea, we take on the the character and the flavor, the aroma of the thing that we are saturated in. Um, it makes me think of uh, in in some of the theological manuals that have been very helpful in the church um, and they are well worth your time. Um, kind of the one of the fruits of the scholastic method and movement in the church. Uh, there's an example given about grace that's really helpful um, that I think works here. So there's this fountain, right? And the waters of this fountain are, are God's grace. And when you begin to go to the fountain to draw water, you start by lapping it like a dog. And then once you've been filled up as much as you can, as much as you are able, you return and you find you can cup some of the water in your hand. And then the more you consume, the more you're saturated with God's grace, you return and now you can fill a bowl and you can fill a pitcher and you can fill a barrel and you can fill a vat, and it gets bigger and bigger and more expansive over time, the more you are returning to the source of God's grace, the more you're returning to him and living with God and participating in the sacraments, being saturated in God's grace yields in us a greater capacity for that grace. And the same thing is true with the virtues. And the more we are saturated in them, the more we participate in them, the more 
we pray for them, the more we exercise them, the greater our capacity for those virtues become. And ideally, that's the movement, the trajectory, the, the telos of our life. It's the movement and directionality of holiness to God. And I think that's a really beautiful thing, but it's also a deeply pastoral thing because it recognizes the fact that you come and you do what you can. You engage with God. You, um, you take those small steps over time but they have a real substance and a real purpose to them. Even before it seems, you know, our comprehension of them, or I should say our, our sort of apprehension of their, you know, the, the nuances of their effectiveness is, is even in place, right? You know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a reason why children, you know, being at mass or children, you know, participating in the faith as an icon of faith in the kingdom is, is, that you know they they do the thing as though it is real um without uh, without really understanding why um and that there's a there's a kind of reality to that 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 we have to we can't depart from and even if we become more you know informed even if we become more if we attain to deeper wisdom and understanding we can't lose that 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 foundational entrusting of ourselves and you know so in practice you know, how do we how do we grow and nurture the theological virtues you know beyond you know getting baptized is um is we you know we we go to the places where these things are treated as real for one right we i mean this i mean this is a, a call a, you know a call to all of us especially approaching advent you know um it's you know get to mass every sunday um and pray the offices every day um and and then begin to uh look at the 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 ins and outs of the day in between morning and evening prayer as opportunities to entrust ourselves um, and, and entrust the circumstances of our lives, whether they're obvious opportunities for entrusting ourselves or the most opaque and perplexing opportunities to entrust ourselves. Uh, get to confession a bunch. Um, you know, like that's, that's another thing. I, I think I, I was talking with someone recently about this is, you know, they were, they were kind of struggling with, you know, with believing that they had been forgiven, you know, and, uh, you know, after, you know, re repenting of a sin, like, have you tried, you know, have you been to confession recently, you know, because there's something unmistakable and, uh, and objective in, in, in that encounter, again, of hearing a voice say you, your sins are forgiven. The Lord has put away all of your sins. Um, you know, and, and again, the, the places where these things are treated as real, um, and because where we're, where we're around, where things, you know, what, wherever we are, whatever is treated as most real in that context tends to be what we acclimate toward and orient around anyway, right? Because of our, just how we're built. And, and so it's just a, a call to us to say, we, we can't delude ourselves into thinking we'll um, lead faithful, hopeful, and loving lives if we're not regularly in the places and in the company of people who highly regard those things, practice them constantly, and, uh, and treat them as real. I think, Father Hayden, earlier you used the image of, um, of like, gardening. And there is a sense in which I think when we talk about virtues, cardinal, but especially uh, theological, that we should think of the soul as a garden and that we should take that time to tend to it. It's, it's the same instructions that Paul gave to Timothy um, about his ordination, the grace he received at ordination, that he should kindle the gift that was in him, you know, um, that we should spend that time really taking care of 
the soul, um, which sounds trite. It sounds like maybe something Oprah would do, but um, it, in the Christian context, it's exactly what you're saying. It's 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 achieving uh, certain habits of life that strengthen these virtues in us, and I think that's so important. It takes time, it takes work. We don't always see the benefits, but it's certainly worth doing and good for us. Well, that, that image of stir up the gift within you, right, uh, is is back to your point of saturation and the and tea infusion, right? Is when when something sits undisturbed and unmoved for a long time, right? That it get all the sediment sort of like sits at the bottom. The the the, the tea weakens, right? It, it like it, it sort of like the de relative density of it will kind of pull down the the tea, you know, and it will kind of get kind of more like milk toast at the top, right? And the the idea of going and giving it a good stir, right, and like stirring it up, you know, that's that's a that's a good image, and that's what these these encounters, you know, with God in the sacraments and in the daily offices, and in, just in the company of other believers, this is this is this is our regularity in that and our discipline to that. That's what keeps that all that saturation and not kind of bifurcated. And of course, we have to mention one other way, one other place people can go where we actually believe these things, which is this podcast. So the other thing you can do to strengthen up your theological virtues is to uh, you know download another episode and and give it a listen. Subtle, yeah, very subtle, very subtle. I think I I mean how could we top that? So I think we have to end it now. <laughs> I just noticed there are three of us, and you know there are three theological virtues. So we could let people ponder. We you know which which person is faith, which is hope, and which is love. You know, well oh, that's that, that sounds you know, like hit a Twitter that, poll. Hit that comment section, everybody. You know, <laughs> that sounds like a Twitter poll that we'll have to release in conjunction with this episode. So yes, well, wonderful. Well, that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment. Father Creighton, what are you into these days? That's a good question. Um, as a stress relief, I've been playing some video games. Shocking. Shock all, I know. You've uh, done this before as you're what you're into. I have, um, but I'm into... Uh, did I, I think I mentioned at one point that I was playing Hogwarts Legacy. Yes. Um, that was a that was a fun game, um, but also uh, similar vein like an RPG kind of game. Uh, been playing Red Dead Redemption Two, uh, so I get to live out my uh, boyhood uh, dreams of being a cowboy in the Wild West, um, which is fun and it's enjoyable. I didn't know they had cowboys in Australia. I thought they would be like kangaroo wrestlers or something. Oh, they do. They're <laughs> called bush rangers. Um, and uh, they have, they, it's like a very similar sort of uh, wild west kind of experience. Um, untamed wilderness. Lots of droving and cattle ranching and, you know, riding horses through the bush and outlaws. Um, there's some, Fascinating historical examples of outlaw bush rangers that uh, did some crazy things, like Nick Kelly uh, and his band. He uh, he made a suit of iron and uh, oh, I've heard about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, his his outlaw band, you know, robbed banks and things like that. And he would show up in this Iron Man suit um, with his you know, rifle and your six shooter on either side. Um, 
So fascinating, fun things. But uh, yeah, a little, little bit of cowboy never hurt me one, right? I hurt a lot of people, but you know. Well, it does if you're a Cowboys fan. It hurts a lot. Hey, the segue. Speaking of Cowboys fans, Father Hayden, what are you into these days? Well, on that note, you know, I'm going to be, I'm glad that they're playing earlier in the day this Sunday so that I can mention them during mass uh, in our time zone uh, and and specifically intend, uh, you know, uh, lift some intentions for that. Um, but uh, yeah, lately, um, oh gosh, I, I really echo Father Creighton's, uh, his, uh, his, you know, the stress relief of video games. Um, I remember during the pandemic, um, you know, subjecting uh, my housemates to uh, my 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 wife and and uh, her sister-in-law who was living with us, her sister who was living with us at the time, um, uh, to the uh, the Odyssey that was uh, Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild, and uh, and at that point I had you know accomplished a lot of the main tasks and was just like grinding out these like completionist tasks and nearly like drove them with it, you know drove them insane, um, but you know. That, that's what it was. Um, but uh, this week, um, I'm, uh, I'm I've picked up a uh, uh, an old habit of reading uh, a Star Wars novel as a kind of recreational activity. Uh, as a kid, I read an embarrassing amount of them, um, and I'm I'm I was I, I was you know sort of indifferent to the um, you know the declaring of all the old canon as apocryphal, and uh, and the creation of a new uh, a new lore. Um, so I got on eBay and I found some of the old novels that are, that people are selling on there um, from the old canon, um, and uh, and I've been uh, thoroughly enjoying revisiting some of those. So I'm I'm reading through uh, one of those novels now. Uh, it's the uh, the New Jedi Order series, which is um, starts off like really adventurous and then takes a terribly bleak turn about halfway through. So um, I'm wait I'm, I'm not there quite yet, but but, uh, but we're getting there. So it's it's been a fun odyssey. I read the uh, the Thrawn trilogy after yeah. it was after they had declared it as uh, apocryphal, but I I really liked it actually. It was really outstanding. Enjoyable. So Thrawn is my favorite villain in the Star Wars world, um, and I mean Thrawn as a character is no longer apocryphal because of his inclusion yeah, in, in Rebels and in Ahsoka and. Um, you know, some of some of the series that they've been making recently, um, you know, if you haven't watched Ahsoka, he appears uh, as, a central, Spoiler alert. as a central figure. Um, but the, the Thrawn, the books are really good, like really good. Um, Father Hayden, have you watched any of the shows? Oh, yeah. No, we're we're all caught okay. up. Yeah. Okay. So Rebels and Ahsoka. Yeah. Um, you know, he's an excellent, he's an excellent character and, and, uh, you know, Mads Mikkelsen voicing him is perfect voice casting and, and, and actual casting in the live action show as well. Um, no, he's, he's an excellent villain, an excellent villain. Yeah. Eerie. I do have to make my confession that I'm behind. Mm. I have not watched Ahsoka. I, we let our Disney plus subscription lapse and I keep meaning to steal it from my sister. Um, huh. but I keep forgetting the password. So Disney is listening. Father Wes. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Don't That's say great. that out loud. That's true. Father um, West, what are you into these days? Uh, I am into going to the gym. I've been doing that more lately. In fact, Father Creighton and I went together uh, one of the days at Synod, though I would have liked if we had gone more. But, well, actually, Father Creighton probably would have liked it if we had gone more. I don't know if I would have actually liked it. But I've been going. But, man, getting back into it is rough. I uh, 
I did leg day, I think on Friday last week and on Sunday at church, I was, I had muscles that were so sore. I didn't ever even knew they existed beforehand. So it was a lot. I told the people, I said, I told our organist, I said, if I go down for genuflection and don't get up, it's not because I'm pious. It's because I just can't get up. So I don't know. I've been going, I've been trying to go four or five days a week. Um, usually shorter trips, like 30, 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, but, um, but have been really enjoying getting into that and just kind of, um, having a little time to sort of not really have to think about a whole lot and just doing, doing some physical stuff. Um, so it's good to, good to get back into that here. It actually gets cold father Hayden. So, uh, the gym is the only place where you can do physical activities. <laughs> we all have our burdens to bear. That's know? right. That's right. And perfect, you know, temperate weather most of the year is such a burden. Such yeah, a burden. You know. <laughs> well, if you ever need help bearing that burden, you know. Well, listeners, thank you for uh, for joining us with this discussion. And uh, we hope that you'll follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Make sure that you like and subscribe on YouTube. Um, and if you wouldn't mind dropping a rating and review on iTunes, we would appreciate that as well. And of course, if you want access to our Discord channel, um, and some other bonus content, you can join the communion of Patreon saints over at Patreon for just $5 a month. Uh, to close, Father Creighton, would you pray the collect for the 14th Sunday after Trinity? I think you'll see why we're doing that one. Absolutely. You may not be familiar with it because it's from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, 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 so funny. They're running, they're running joke. All right, let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, give unto us the increase of faith, hope, and charity, and that we may obtain that which thou dost promise. Make us to love that which thou dost command. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, for one God, world without end. Amen.